This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Keith Law. Welcome to episode 101 of The Keith Law Show. I'm going to be joined today by Professor Justin E.H. Smith, the author of a very interesting new book called The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. As somebody who is not well-versed in philosophy of any sort, I found it quite educational and also not quite what I expected in a good way. I did have a column go up for subscribers to The Athletic on Saturday, a scouting blog post. I went to see the Guardians and Nationals AA affiliates, Akron and Harrisburg, respectively, last week and caught Gavin Williams, who's the Guardians' first-round pick in 2021, Tanner Bibby, who was their fifth-round pick in 2021, but has become the second-best pitching prospect in their system, one of the top 60 prospects in all of baseball. As well as Robert Hassel, who was the Padres' first-round pick in 2020. He was traded to Washington in the Juan Soto package and almost immediately bumped up to double A. And there's some notes on some other Guardians and Nationals prospects in that post as well. Also, later this week, I will have my annual post on players I was wrong about and have a couple of other things in the works, much of which is content you're used to seeing from me at the end of every season. And for those of you who follow me for board game content, I did have another new review go over go up over at Paste Magazine last week, a flip and write game called Next Station London, which I actually started playing online and found highly addictive and then ended up with a physical copy as well. And I've also been catching up on some reviews. I have quite a backlog, actually, putting some up over on my own site, uh, including reviews of Scout, Get On Board. Uh, Scout is a trick-taking game of sorts. Uh, get on board New York and London, which is another flip and write game uh, that I also really enjoyed. It's kind of a genre I'm really into lately. And uh, Corrosion, which is an engine building game that just kind of went under the radar. If you like that slightly crunchier version, that particular genre of game, I actually thought Corrosion was quite well done. My guest this week is Justin E.H. Smith. He is a professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Paris. He has a new book out this year called The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. Justin, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. So let's start with the title of the book. Sure. You, you say the internet is not what we think it is. So mm-hmm. what, what do we, the collective we, mm-hmm. think the internet is? Well, I suppose there are 
two senses of that name. And in fact, I should say it was not the name I chose. It was my editor at Princeton University Press. He's always right. It sells more <laughs> copies than than the than the titles I proposed. But uh, still, it was somewhat imposed on me. It is a sentence that occurs towards the beginning of chapter two, however. And what I mean by it there is that the internet is not a recent appearance in human history. Even if the gadgetry was only finally worked out over the past, I don't know, 50, 60 years, um, the aspiration to telecommunicate and to be connected instantaneously across long distances by means of potentially machines that process information in the way that our computers do is a dream that's quite old. It goes back at least to the 1670s with uh, figures such as Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, a German philosopher of the 17th century whom I've written quite a bit about and who figures as kind of a, uh, 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 he makes frequent appearances in the book as well. So it's much older than we think it is, or the aspiration is much older, and that's important. But there's another sense in which it's not what we think it is also, and that is especially the, the internet in a more limited sense, uh, uh, which I sometimes call the phenomenological internet. That is to say, the part that we spend a lot of time screwing around on, our scrolling, our, our, you know, our news feeds, um, the lazy internet, you might call it. Um, that is not what we think it is because we have become convinced over the past 10, 15 years only, that this is a viable space for pursuing rational discourse and ultimately for uh, pursuing uh, the aims of an open society, which is rational deliberation towards collective decision-making, things like that. And even if we don't really believe this, you still see people on Twitter and Facebook all the time making substantive claims about what is good for society, for example, as if this were a viable venue for doing that, right? <laughs> and it's not a viable venue. It's not the public square. As I like to put it sometimes, Twitter has the same relationship to deliberative democracy that Grand Theft Auto has to stolen car chases. That is to say <laughs> that it is a deliberative democracy themed video game in the same way that Grand Theft Auto is a car chase themed video game. And anyone who uses it as if it were the real thing is being duped. So those are at least two senses. <laughs> Uh, and so for folks who haven't read the book yet, you, you do define, to, to help define what the internet really is, you go back through this history, which you just mm. sort of summarized nicely in a couple of minutes there, what the antecedents are of several facets of the modern internet. Mm -hmm. What aspects, and I'm particularly thinking of sort of the worst aspects mm -hmm. of the current internet that you just view as inherent in mm. our social organizations 
and that we're just going to see, you know, today it's Twitter. Ten years from now, it's going to be some. Five years from now, it could be something else. Something what are the things you think we're just going to keep seeing, no matter how we try to organize online? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I'm not a total defeatist. Uh, you know, if I can evoke the name of Leibniz once again, he was quite extreme in his optimism. He thought that if we could just kind of uh, outsource to machines most of the drudging work of reasoning, then human society would be able, we'd just be able to spend all our time doing what we want to do in leisure and intellectual pursuits we really love, while the machines would be, you know, making energy policy, pursuing diplomacy, doing all the high level stuff that is important but that is also dreary for human beings. Leibniz actually thought that at some point will be when two two nations are about to go to war, they can just punch into the machine their respective positions and some little ticker tape would come out and tell them which side is right. And then they could avoid going to war, right? Which is, of course, absurd from our point of view today, because we tend to think that when two nations go to war, it has nothing to do with who they believe is right. Um, they believe, you know, who cares who's right? We're going to uh, uh, do whatever we can to come across as right, right? Um, and so, so the idea that the machines could solve that kind of problem just looks very naive. And, you know, uh, uh, it's part of a whole early modern spirit of uh, uh, in really intense optimism that was lost. When was it lost? Well, it's interesting. I, I mean, one figure I talk about in the book, but I would have liked to talk about more is Norbert Wiener, the author of the great uh, treatise of 1948 called Cybernetics, which was... Um, Incidentally, in its origin, cybernetics was not just the cyber, as Trump likes, like, used to like to say. <laughs> um, it uh, cybernetics pertained any uh, system that operates on feedback, right? Which is to say, thermostats, uh, self-regulating furnaces, um, and uh, information processing machines of the sort they had in the 1940s, and also, very importantly, living animal bodies. So what we think of as cybernetic today is only a very small part of Norbert Wiener's program. In any case, um, he wrote some very interesting uh, addenda to uh, cybernetics in the early 1960s, where he was reflecting on teaching uh, computers how to play chess and checkers. And he says that, you know, ultimately you might think you're just teaching the machine to play a well-defined and limited game. But once you're doing that, there's no telling where it's going to stop. And you're already running the risk of the machine jumping the fence, right? And we might not be in a future situation, Wiener contends, in which we'll know when it's time to shut the machines off, right? Um, and uh, that's that's the real fear that um, running uh, simulations of seemingly uh, 
small things or just doing something we think is instructing us about how the world works, notably war games, which they started running by the 1960s to assess the risks of nuclear war and, you know, what the outcomes of various scenarios of nuclear war would be. Um, you're running these war games because you want to understand um, how not to get into a pickle, right? But what Wiener is saying is the war games themselves um, uh, are uh, kind of contributing to an environment of escalatory pressure, right? And so um, so I think Wiener, unlike Leibniz, I mean, Wiener admires Leibniz a great deal, but unlike Leibniz, Wiener really understands um, the, so to speak, uh, the dark side of outsourcing uh, the responsibility for reasoning things through right whether that's how to play chess or how to avoid war right um and is it maybe it's just because uh wiener has more evidence uh you know the uh the computing is much further along in the 1960s than it was in the 1670s and he's able to see that it's it's not working but for the most part i see the leibnizian period of the history of computer computer science or of computing, let's say, um, as a, as quite long as extending roughly from 1678 to about 2015, right? Which is a long period because it's only in the middle of the last decade that I stopped being an optimist, that I started uh, uh, noticing um, the 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 dangers and the menaces that were lurking in what I had previously been quite optimistic about. Now, when did uh, this become all too apparent? It's difficult to say. I think many people have different wake-up moments. Uh, I think I was particularly thick-skulled and noticed noticed later than some people. But um, by the end of the 2010s, nobody could any longer have that um, that uh, naivete that led them to say things like circa 2011, that the Arab Springs were uh, the Twitter revolutions, Twitter catalyzing uh, democracy throughout the developing world, um, things like that. Or, you know, going back even earlier to the 90s, the idea of netizens, you know, people bound together in new sorts of citizenship via new technologies um that died in the 2010s <laughs> um to me the sort of darkest and there are a lot of dark sides of the internet but i personally i guess where i kind of lost my innocence so to speak and became more of a pessimist was about 10 years ago or so when i started to see anti-vaxxers move very aggressively onto social media particularly twitter where they still mm. are um, mm -hmm. with very little limits on what they yeah. do and say. And it, it just seems that uh, disinformation, misinformation, they've just increased in velocity over the last decade because of social media, lack of regulations, yeah. social media companies essentially saying, we're just carriers, yeah. we have no control, which is clearly yeah. not true. Yeah. Do you think this is unavoidable? You know, the, when we, The more we connect the world, that that's just, it, it's 
part of the yeah. part of the overall equation? Will there always be a QAnon? QAnon will die at some point. Yeah. Will there always be something else to replace it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very complicated question, and I'm not sure I have a clear view on this. I'm not sure. I'm I'm quite sure I don't have a satisfactory solution, right? <laughs> and the, the two go together. Right. Because for me, the problem is that, you know, on the one hand, it's uh, it seems like an abnegation of real responsibility um, for uh, the social media sites to say, or the social media companies to say, you know, we're not publishers. Um, we are just the, you know, the platform where people uh, say whatever they want. Uh, and obviously that's new, not true. And obviously they're dissimulating. On the other hand, I don't want social media companies uh, either to set themselves up as the people who decide what is, what can be said and what can't be said. Right. I don't want um, a, a, a private company uh, run by Mark Zuckerberg to be the 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 force in society that ensures that QAnon doesn't spread, right? right? <laughs> um, uh, uh, but so what is the alternative? Just let it, let, let them run free? Um, well, there's where I really don't have a solution. I mean, I think de facto social media are a sort of public utility like um, electricity or water, right? At this point. Um, and uh, it's, um, it's, going to be an ongoing disaster until that is recognized. At the same time, um, I don't want, I think other greater problems would emerge if, say, social media were nationalized tomorrow and run as a public utility company. But ideally, I do think that standards um, would be set by the public. Um, through the kind of deliberation that, you know, that you see on school boards and things like that, which we really don't have. We have arbitrary, um, secret uh, diktats uh, that determine um, whose account gets uh, suspended and whose doesn't. And however hateful or vicious or ignorant the suspended accounts are, um, that's no way to go about uh, fighting disinformation, um, and it's it's a it's a real problem that's not going away anytime soon, right? Except that I I mean I think for better or worse I think over the past few years, say in the post-Trump era, I think what we are seeing is a more effective say streamlining of accept of the acceptable range of discourse on social media. Um, that is in not so much being done by kind of brutal crackdowns as by um, what political philosophers like to talk about nowadays as nudging or soft, soft paternalism. That is to say, we're being nudged toward um, Disney and Netflix uh, content more and more to keep us occupied um, uh, as a way of, you know, uh, limiting the range of things people think of as possible, uh, viable expression 
on social media, right? And I think that's that's not good either, right? So I just I just I just don't see for the moment uh, a way to um, make uh, social media um, uh, 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 an environment of um, healthy, creative, uh, productive uh disagreement right i don't see it happening things are going to have to change radically uh you levy to me uh, a new criticism of the algorithms that drive the content we consume with an mm. example around spotify's you may also like feature yeah, yeah 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 can you explain that example do you think we as consumers can work with that algorithm to sort of turn it around so we can use it to our advantage yeah, I mean, maybe I, 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 I complain too much, but, you know, I, I think what I liked in my teen years uh, when I was actively deepening my knowledge of musical subcultures was precisely the fact that, you know, you go into a used used record store and you flip through the, you know, the uh, bargain crates and you see stuff that's thrown together just totally pell-mell, you know, genres that don't belong next to each other at all. And there's this kind of aleatory process that happens in the real physical world that um, is largely streamlined out in algorithmic functions like what you have on Spotify, where you know, it tries to figure out um, what your preferences are and deliver you more of the same. And one of the, I mean, what one of the things that I talk about, and this is just important to me kind of as a, um, you know, as a popular music encyclopedist is um, that, you know, if you listened, I, I forget what example I used, the song, I Put a Spell on You, um, uh, which has been done by, artists in wildly different genres, right? Um, and the problem today is if you land on Marilyn Manson's rendition of I Put a Spell on You, it will give you more kind of, uh, I don't know how you describe it, but um, you know, late 20th century uh, maximalist um, uh, uh, schlock uh yes rock i don't know um, i mean i don't angsty, know what the goth yeah yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah. on the same page um, here <laughs> <laughs> and it won't lead you back to um uh screaming jay hawkins or um to uh diamanda galas or anyone in these other genres who who did it and you won't you won't discover other genres whereas to my mind what's beautiful about popular music is that it's like you you have you know music running like songs uh standards running like leitmotifs through different genres through wildly different interpretations and so this is just one of the ways that people are losing i think a historical sensibility the idea of a song running like a thread through the years right uh which is i think something that um used to be very important in the way people appreciated popular music um and this is part of a much larger problem where ironically um 
you know, in you would think that given the access we have via the internet to so much from humanity's past, you know, I can immediately download scans of manuscripts from, you know, the 14th century from the Bibliothèque Nationale here in Paris, whenever I feel like it. And I have access to the 14th century, just like at my fingertips. It's a miracle. Um, so the paradox then is that the past still, the, the past, nonetheless, the past seems more and more inaccessible, right? We seem more cut off from it than ever. And why that should be the case, you know, if you had told me 30 years ago that in the future, anyone can access any document from the, from, from the human past um, instantly from a device in their pockets, I would think, wow, in the future, people are going to really be sensitized to the fact that they're kind of in the flow of history. But on the contrary, the more access we have, the less it matters, right? And I think that um, little things like um, uh, uh, algorithms, uh, sorry, Spotify's al algorithms are largely responsible for this. We're being nudged algorithmically into a a historyless conception of our place in the world. Right? To my uh, surprise, you speak quite highly in the book of Wikipedia, which is often yeah. maligned by academics and teachers of teenagers. I happen to have a teenager, so I've heard this. <laughs> little bit. What, yeah. what about the architecture of that site uh, makes it different from the cesspools of Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and so on? Yeah, someone once said that Wikipedia uh, doesn't work in theory, but it works in practice. <laughs> like the 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 inversion of what people yep. say about Marxism. So I and I I think that's true. Um, uh, and I certainly the way I use Wikipedia, uh, it's you know just this kind of I don't know junk food for my curiosity. But I just you know I often find myself just uh, opening the article on. Uh, say Saskatchewan or something, and just just clicking links in the Saskatchewan article that lead me to articles on some you know subspecies of 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 deer or I don't know what. And for me, it's like relaxing. Um, it's it's something I do when I'm done with my serious work for the day, and it gives me this level of fine grained knowledge of our world that I just really, really uh, value, even at the same time as I recognize that it has changed me cognitively in, in a significant way. Like I, you know, as I said in the book, you know, uh, 20 years ago, if you, if I were walking along and I thought, hmm, what is a quasar anyway? I, I'd probably just say, nah, I don't know. I guess I'll find out someday. Next time I next time I happen to be talking to an astronomer, I'll ask, right? But but uh now if I have a thought like that, I immediately check it out. And so the result of this, after years of doing this, is that I think I know a lot more than I otherwise would. Um, but it's a uh, uh uh you know, uh, a, a kind of a, a 
an embarrassment of riches or it's an excess it's like excess wealth uh, uh excess cognitive wealth that i have as a result of this and it uh it is uh at the expense of other forms of knowledge that i could have been cultivating in the same period of time. Um, but in terms of what makes it work, I suppose just, you know, a minimal amount of gatekeeping. Um, you know, you can't just go and say whatever, or if you do, another editor will correct you pretty quickly. I don't know who these people are who devote their lives to it, but they're they're real heroes, in my opinion. You know, if I write something, I want to get credit for it. Um, these people are are there correcting errors and you know just volunteering to set the record straight and I, I think that's quite remarkable um yeah so yeah I mean obviously you know uh there was a long time where uh indeed it made sense for professors and high school teachers to say don't look at this but I think those days are are over or almost over there's no reason in principle why it shouldn't be a, a source i mean i know for scholarship it's often a place i start like if i see in some 18th century text reference to someone's name i've never heard of wikipedia is the first place i go if i want to put a footnote in published work of course i dig a bit deeper right? beyond wikipedia but it's right. certainly it's certainly a good place to start Last question I'd like to ask you is, and you, you've hinted at this a little bit in previous answers, but the subtitle of the book com concludes with the words, a warning. Yeah. So just to make it explicit, what is that warning and what would you like to see us, and it could be individuals, it could be governments, whoever, yeah. do about Well, I mean, you know, the truth is I'm not a big uh, policy person. Uh, the one negative review so far has criticized me on that point, as was uh, in in the nation. Um, uh, but I, you know, I own it. I, I I'm not here to 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 solve the problems. I'm here to identify the problems, and I, I think <laughs> I think that's an important part of the work we have to do together. You know, different people contribute in different ways. Um, but I, uh, but, and, you know, there are wonderful works like, for example, Shoshana Zuboff on, um, uh, on uh, surveillance capitalism. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work out there that, uh, that, that is better at looking at policy failures and how to correct them. Uh, than anything I could ever do. But uh, I do think that um, at an individual level, the warning is um, uh, more kind of about our own orientation to the internet and in particular to what I called the phenomenological internet, what I just called, and I think I like this even better, the lazy internet, um, uh, uh, it's the first time I've used that phrase, uh, to stop seeing it as a viable uh, place for uh, uh, civil progress or for working out of differences or anything like that. I often say that, you know, given the uh, unacceptable uh, parameters 
discourse is expected to unfold in, in a place like Twitter, the only people who are using it correctly are the trolls, right? Because they're the ones who know that this is, <laughs> that this is just, I mean, this is not acceptable. And so, um, you know, not that I am a troll myself uh, or, uh, you know, have any interest in joining uh, into that mentality, but um, I do think that, uh, that, that there's a serious uh, kind of uh, unacceptable uh, or in- inadequacy uh, in the parameters uh, that the social media companies have set out for us. And we can resist it in various ways, um, uh, uh, privately and also publicly working around these parameters and hopefully eventually also coming up with something in a grassroots bottom-up way that is truly uh, a viable medium for productive discourse. (laughs) (laughs) My guest this week has been Professor Justin E. H. Smith, the author of the new book, The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. You can subscribe to Justin's newsletter at justineehsmith.substack.com, also titled Justin E. H. Smith's Hinternet. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. It was a real pleasure. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. As I said, I'll have a couple of the usual columns coming up for me in the next few weeks. Players I was wrong about, minor league players of the year, and notes on off-season awards or postseason awards. But I will not be writing about the NL Rookie of the Year Award this year until November because I actually have a ballot again. Probably not a huge surprise. We all know it's going to be one of two players. I think that which one of those two is one and which is two will come down to the wire. But I'm glad to be voting again, certainly. It is an honor and a privilege. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe. Stay safe.